Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Lit Service, where we're fans of fiction and purveyors of dodgy writing advice. My name is Aaliyah, and I am in love with Eustace Scrub. Before his transformation, that boy just gets in everybody's way. I'm Cameron, and I'm going to go a little left field. There is a vampire that Charles Dance plays in Dracula Untold, and he only has like eight minutes of screen time, and I could watch that character for hours. I'm Caitlin, and my favorite unlikable character is um, one of the little goblin things in Sleeping Beauty. You know the one with the really deep voice that gets <laughs> into trouble all the time? No! I still remember that from when I was little. It, I can't even mimic it. It like goes, I, I can't do it. Sorry. Everyone would make fun of me, and then I would feel sad about myself. Little goblins with scary voices. That's my favorite unlikable character. <laughs> I'm Kristen, and my current favorite unlikable character is Dwight from The Walking Dead, because I just finished season eight. And he's the what worst, Dwight but also from the, the best. He's the no, best. why would I like I him? I love Dwight. <laughs> Hi, I'm Kirsten White, and my favorite unlikable character is probably Jareth, the Goblin King from Labyrinth. Oh, good choice. Yeah, watching that show as a kid, like, I loved it so much, and I thought it was maybe romantic, but I wasn't sure. It's not. Um, <laughs> really kind of messed me up, actually, uh, but I love him. Okay, well, a huge welcome to Kirsten White, New York Times bestselling author of Paranormalcy, and I Darken, The Dark Descent of Elizabeth Frankenstein, which won the Bram Stoker Award and just got optioned for a movie. And Congratulations. Thank you. So exciting. And also the Guinevere, the Guinevere Deception, just to name a few. So Kirsten, thank you for coming on the show. We are thrilled to have you. And this is perfect because, though it sounds bad to say it, you are a master of creating unlikable characters. And I'll <laughs> add the caveat, unlikable characters who are likable. So today we want to discuss a little bit about how to make unlikable characters sympathetic or relatable. So why have unlikable characters, or what do we mean by unlikable in this situation? I, I'm glad that you specified that you like my characters, because <laughs> it's going to be like, you're a master of unlikable characters, we don't like any of them. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's, you have lots of characters that would be difficult to like in real life, but who I like yes. reading about. <laughs> yes. Yeah. That was my definition I came up with, was like the good guys who I totally wouldn't want to know where I live in real life, <laughs> slash, like, do, do all of the things that I wish I could, but to like an extreme level that I would never do them. I don't even <laughs> think that they have to be good guys necessarily. They just have to be the protagonists or a character that you care about. Because like, if I'm thinking about the lies of Locke Lamora, Locke Lamora is not a good person. Um, no. <laughs> And I don't think I'd want him in my life, but he's certainly likable. So, Certainly fun to follow. Yeah, he's super fun to follow. I think for me, an unlikable character stems from a character who tells truths that we don't want to look at because they remind um, us of ourselves, right? Like, like they're characters who we express um, the parts of ourselves that we wish didn't exist through. And so, you know... It's uncomfortable. Like, I think the best unlikable characters make you uncomfortable. Um, and sometimes that's my goal. Like, with Lada in the Anti Darken trilogy, I wanted to present a character who goes on to do genuinely terrible things, but you've spent so much time with her that you understand her. And I wanted my readers to be like, oh, yeah, oh, no, why am I agreeing with this? Um, <laughs> and to really question, like, how far are they willing to go along with a character um, making choices that are harming a lot of people? 
No, that's a fantastic definition. And I think it shows how much skill and intention and attention you give these people that really helps the readers connect with them as humans too. So if an author wants to create that relationship between a maybe, maybe technically unlikable character and the reader, how can they do that? How can authors create that sympathy for these characters? I mean, it has. It is something I've thought a lot about um, because I do have several books with deeply unlikable characters, um, and for me, it really comes down to um, not sympathy but understanding. So when I was writing Lada, I was worried that I pushed her too far and that readers just were going to hate her. And so at one point in drafting, I was like, "Well, maybe she really likes animals. Like maybe I can have her really love animals." and be really nice to animals and that will be people's in to sympathizing with her but it didn't actually work with her character and and so with Lotta and especially with Elizabeth Frankenstein in the darkest Son of Elizabeth Frankenstein um Elizabeth is a deeply manipulative person she's um she's she's kind of nasty um she views every interaction as as a transaction and and how can I get something out of this um and so in order to have the reader sympathize with that I needed the reader to understand her position and her situation and so I really built into the narrative just how powerless she truly was and that um her ability to manipulate people and to force them to like her was really the only power that she had in her situation and for me that's really what it comes down to it's not finding little ways to like oh but she's super nice to horses horses are terrifying um it's it's really about building in understanding like the reader doesn't have to agree with what the character is doing or even like it but they have to understand why the character is doing it and I think that's what also makes the best villains is they're not evil for the sake of being evil they're evil in pursuit of a very specific goal and the reader understands that goal so I read I read and I darkened semi-recently and like I noticed one of the things you did with Lotta is that like you jump in like right at like from the moment of her birth the entire world is against yeah. her. And like, none of it excuses some of the stuff that she goes on to do, but you can see how, yeah, yeah, if this is how you grew up, yeah, I can not not sympathize, but understand why you're doing the things yeah, you're doing. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, and I think I think that's crucial. I think with with when you're developing unlikable characters, that developing that understanding with the audience, and and I did very deliberately start the book with her birth, um, which you know is not typical for YA novels to follow a narrator from birth and childhood on, but I really really wanted to ground the reader in this is what her world is and this is what is shaping her, so that it would inform everything that she was and everything that she became. And I think a lot of time the when you give that much context for readers to understand where people are coming from, the sympathy does naturally follow. Like there have been very many stories with villains that I've started off hating. And by the end, because I understood yes. why people are willing to follow them, why they're why they think what they're doing is right. Even though I hated what they were doing, I was like, oh my gosh, is the villain actually correct? Are the good guys even the good guys? <laughs> and when you can get to that point, um, I think as a writer, you've done something tremendously wonderful um, because you're making your reader examine all of the biases that they've been living with this whole reading experience or watching experience as the case may be. That's true. I have an interesting idea that I want to get your feelings on. Um, I have found with my own personal narrators, the more unlikable someone is, the more readers like them and excuse their behavior. But if they're mostly likable and only a little bit unlikable, like like Radu, 
who is the balance to Lada, um, people dislike them a lot. Um, they're a lot quicker to dislike them and to dismiss them. Um, and I found that also with, you know, previous narrator from a book, um, Isadora from the Chaos of Stars. She's very angry and I felt it was a very justifiable anger, but people really reacted um, strongly to that and they didn't like her. Um, and and I, I thought that was really interesting because I've never gotten that pushback with Lada. People like Lada. And I think part of it is wish fulfillment because she's, you know, if you were just like, what if I just did whatever I had to anytime to get what I wanted, no matter what, like there's a, there is definitely an element of wish fulfillment there. Um, but I, I do find it interesting that the more likable your character is, the less likely people are to like them if they demonstrate any unlikability whatsoever. Have you guys noticed that in your own writing, yes. in your reading? Like, I think it's a lot harder. I, I think maybe part of what's contributing to that is it's really upsetting or it can be upsetting to see somebody like drop their morals. And mm -hmm. so if they start off in a place where you feel like they have the moral high ground and then they go against something that they believe the whole time, it's really easy to be annoyed by that or to think like, that's not what you should be doing. But if you already kind of start with a more open field, it's a lot easier to be like yes I do accept that decision I think you're horrible but I love watching you be horrible well I think it's like the difference between like um like June and or not June um Jude and Carden from the Wicked King and the Cruel Prince and all those I mean they start out pretty awful I mean like in the very first couple of chapters Carden like tries to drown her and we're like oh yeah but we will still go to school together and talk to each other like there's some pretty nasty stuff that happens in those books and it sets the stage for what happens later they don't actually stop doing those nasty things but we're still on board with them because we want to see them succeed versus like if you go to like Six of Crows if Inej started doing stuff the way Kaz did that would be a lot harder to swallow because the whole point of her character is that she's a foil for Kaz so mm -hmm. I, th I think it's a lot harder to find the character that you identify with and you're like, oh, that's that's the nice one in this horrible fantasy landscape. And then to have them start doing things that align with the, the bad people or the people who are willing to compromise their morals in order to get what they want. Yeah. I yeah. think it has something to do with the bounds of normalness, too. When someone is is lukewarm evil, <laughs> then... <laughs> We can identify them. We can see ourselves more in them as opposed to if they're on the far end of the spectrum. We understand that they're a character, that they've been shaped by the world they live in, that they're going to make these choices that we wouldn't make. But if they're somewhere in between, I feel like we hold them to higher standards because we see ourselves in them more. Yeah. Well, I think it's funny because it doesn't even have to be like evil because um, mm -hmm. we just had our writing group and the protagonist of my piece is this little cowardly gremlin, essentially. She's just the worst. <laughs> but but your reaction to what happened this week was essentially like, oh, yeah, she's ghosting all these people we really love. She's, oh, that's our M. And so I, I totally think that if you set up a character to be dislikable in a way, you just... Ex you ex uh, expect it and are fine with it when it happens. Mm -hmm. Well, and also we're really, really excited when they break from that, even a little yeah. bit. Like if they show a little bit of emotion or <laughs> like the, the standard is so low that yeah. any progression, you're like, oh, look at that. She's almost the same. Breadcrumbs. <laughs> she had a feeling in her heart. You know? So um, we mentioned yeah. a little bit earlier that it can be frustrating for readers when they see someone who has the moral high ground slowly lose that moral high ground and, and compromise their values. 
But are there rules for being able to do that well, or even in the reverse, for being able to have an unlikable, likable, um, morally compromised character move into an area where they're more someone you would want in your actual life without it being frustrating to readers that they've changed? I feel like the greatest example of this is Steve from Stranger Things. (laughs) I hated him so, so much in the first season. (laughs) And then I waited a little bit to watch the second season. I saw all these people talking about Steve and Steve's amazing. And I love Steve. And I was like, no, like I can't even watch the second season if Steve is one of like the good guys. (laughs) But I mean, they... Uh, the way they did it was amazing because they had him, like, they removed him from the situation where we didn't like him, which was causing friction between, um, I can't remember any of the characters' names. This is terrible. Nancy. Um, the romantic friction stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then put him with the kids. So he was like one of the, he was protecting little kids who needed him. And so, yeah. They put him in a situation that made us allowed to like him because it took him away from the things that made us not like him. I don't know if that's a way to do that in a book, though. What do you guys think? I mean, you always have to have change. Uh, Otherwise, the characters are static, and why are you telling their story, right? Um, But it has to be, I feel like it always has to be believable change. Um, and, and, And everything has to be justified. Like, whether they're making a good choice or a bad choice, there has to be justification for it. It can't just happen. Um, I had something happen at the end of, I think, book two in the Anti-Darken Trilogy, where Lada does something genuinely horrendous that was based on a real historical act. The entire books are based on real historical acts. My sisters were like, Kirsten, what is wrong with you? I'm like, it was all history. (laughs) And they were like, oh, that's kind of a relief. But also we feel like you're less creative now. Um, (laughs) I cannot win. No, I have too many sisters. Um, And my editor was like, I get why you want to have this scene, but we don't have the justification for it. So I need you to go back and build in more justification so that when this happens, it's equally horrifying. But again, the reader understands why it's happening and even maybe finds themselves sympathizing with it, which will cause that sort of like cognitive dissonance discomfort, which I love to create in readers. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, so I think I think there just, there always has to be a progression. You can't have a character who's been you know, like, super good, I'll never make this choice, and then they just, oh, well, I guess I'll make that choice. Um, you have to have that, you have to have that progression, and as long as the, as long as the building blocks are there, I think that you can get away with anything. I think, you know, character arcs could easily be its own several hours long discussion, but um, people who want to look at more, um, I want to recommend Hello Future Me has a video essay on YouTube that uses Prince Zuko of last airbender fame and talks about realistic such a good 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 yeah talking about realistic redemption arcs and how to make it like actually believable and something people will buy instead of getting angry over anyway i would just recommend watching Mm -hmm. that if you get a minute i i feel like one of the things i love about zuko but you should go listen to the thing that cameron's talking about is that he makes all of the bad decisions all of them before he starts making good ones yeah so he he does not pull any punches on the on the bad stuff, so it's believable when he starts to come back. Mm-hmm. Okay, well now we're going to move on to the portion of the podcast where we model a writing group on an audience submission. A quick review, we try to be non-prescriptive, but if you'd like to check out the text of the submission and see all of our notes, check on our, check on our website, litservicepodcast.wixsite.com slash litnation. If you would like a first chapter critique from us, you can find our submission guidelines there. 
So, a summary of this submission. 17-year-old Lucy, who has been pressed into drug running for most of her life by a man pretending to be a church leader in a swampy, uh, dystopian world, plans with her boyfriend how to escape once she turns 18. So, very intriguing. What are some things we liked about this submission? I felt like um, it flowed really well. Uh, you instantly knew who each of the characters were. Um, not in a bad way, not that they were cliches, but but it did a very good job in a very short period of time establishing who the characters were and what the stakes were. Yeah, I have the, I have the same reaction. There's a lot of emotion behind what the characters want and we know what they want. And there's a few details that are sketchy on why they can't have it, but we know there's some good reasons why they can't have it. And it makes really good promises about where the story is going to be going. Well, and promises about those reasons we don't quite yet understand. We're, I'm, I was okay with waiting to find out mm-hmm. a little bit more. Um, I really liked the opening line. I think that might be something we talk about again a little bit later, but it's such a great opening line. It's, I don't have it up in front of me, of course, now. But uh, I have about it. One now. second. I'll read it for you. It is, I never close my eyes unless I have to. Mm-hmm. I really like that. I also really like the line that, about um, Neo, the little bad, slimy drug runner kid, says he wouldn't know a gentleman even if he caught it on the end of his fishing line. And also, Neo Polson, son of a drug lord, son of a no- you know what, and a thorn in my side ever since we were kids. <laughs> I just, like Kirsten was saying, like, you know this kid the moment mm-hmm. she says those things. I really loved the setting in this one. I thought um, just the swamp was such a neat place to have it. And then the consistent character rep- uh, references to swamp creatures and living in the swamp and the constant moisture I thought was really nice. And I also thought there was really great iceberging on kind of a world building scale. So by iceberging, we mean when you mention something that tips readers off that there's a whole lot more going in the, on in the world. Um but you're just seeing the Without surface. having to describe all of it. Mm-hmm. So one of those lines was when the main character throws out, or the main character's boyfriend throws out, that they were planning to ascend, and she gasps, and then she talks about different levels for a little bit, but I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, I think in general there were a lot of really cool promises, and we even see some fulfillment on some of them. So like in the opening pages, there's a line that says... Like she's lamenting her fate as a drug runner. And then she says, at least it's not as bad as what he decided my sister was just right for. And then even by the end of these pages, we're seeing a little bit more about what exactly is going on with that. Um, And I just think the idea of the rot, this like super contagious disease that's started because of the drugs, question mark, is, is really cool, especially because it's such a driving concern for her and her health. I also thought there was some nice tension between Lucy and her boyfriend because apparently they're not allowed to touch because of the rot. I thought that was kind of a fun YA sort of a, a conflict that I'm excited to see how that pans out. Mm-hmm. Um, if we're good to move on to things that might need a second look, um, what are your guys' thoughts? Just purely structurally, there were a lot of paragraph breaks where there didn't need to be paragraph breaks. Um, one thing that you want to do when when you've got a first draft and you're editing it, this is not something you have to worry about on a first draft, but later on when you're editing it, is look at the look at your page. If you've got a lot, a lot, a lot of short, short paragraphs, 
you're going to want to structure that differently. You want to get to add some variety because our eyes are lazy and we get bored. So if you've got a lot of like long paragraph, long paragraph, long paragraph, long paragraph, you're going to want to break those up as well. Um, and so this this particular section had quite a few paragraph breaks where there didn't need to be paragraph breaks, especially if you want to single out a sentence to really give it a punch and to really emphasize that sentence by setting it apart as its own paragraph, you want to use that sparingly because otherwise it starts losing its effect because you've got so many single sentences set aside as paragraphs. We don't notice them anymore. They don't stand out. I want to revisit that opening sentence, those opening paragraphs, um, because while I think this idea of her being like struggling with insomnia or being afraid of sleeping is a really cool thing, it also felt like a really ungrounded place to begin a book for me um, because for the first little bit uh, we're purely internal really and I, I didn't have a good sense of where Lucy was or what was going on um, and when we finally get those details I wasn't sure what her not sleeping really had to do with any of them so it felt like it was disjointed from what was actually happening on the page. Yeah, I felt that way too. There's some really gorgeous descriptions in that in those opening paragraphs, but I was never quite sure where she was standing and mm-hmm. where things were in relation to her or yeah. how she got yeah, there. Yeah, I agree. And like, yeah. I feel yeah. like there's, there's just some concrete details that are missing. I'm not sure if she's in the middle of a village. I'm not sure if she's out in the, you know, in, in the boonies and there's a village somewhere else. I don't, I'm not, I, I just don't know. I know there's water. I know there's water dripping from somewhere, but that's 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 all I got. I was gonna say set, setting that scene just a little bit more for us I think will help quite a bit and then I would pull some of the details maybe some of the references like the specific things that they say about where they want to go um, you've got the really juicy details like the people who are hanged um, the ascension uh, that, you know, you have a better chance of getting in if you're an adult and you're healthy. Um, but but then maybe some of the other references that we don't have any reason to understand what they are, um, cut them. Because then the ones that you leave in are even more intriguing because they stand out more because they're not grouped in with a whole bunch of references that we have no context for. Um, and then my last detail is I would change the name of Lake Town because it's um, a major location in The Hobbit. And yes, I thought that too. <laughs> yeah. So if you're writing fantasy and your readers read fantasy, odds are most of them are going to hear Lake Town and they're going to think, Bard? Um, <laughs> and uh, so, yeah. So I would change the name of Lake Town, but that's, that's, I think that's the extent of, of my feedback. I felt like it was a really strong opening. I'll just add to that real fast. Um, some of the details I was looking for earlier were her name, her age, her gender. Um, and I only bring that up just because I actually wasn't even sure she was human until um, we get those details on the second page. I, I was wondering maybe if she was a lizard because she was hiding in the water. <laughs> and I didn't know if this was some sort of experimental thing, but I did have that thought. That's funny. I thought she was a boy, but I did think she was human. So, <laughs> <laughs> But those are things that are so easily fixed with just yeah. little yeah. bits. Of, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Kind of an adjacent yeah. note to Lake Town. This is, this is not on the same scale, but the name um, Draven is a fairly prominent character in a fairly, at least pro- most of y'all probably haven't heard of it, League of Legends is a semi-prominent game that has 115 million players a month, and Draven is a character in that game, so just a thing to be aware of. Um, so I had a question really quick about the Pulsons and the drug empire. Yes. So I, we find out about halfway through, after we've already interacted with slimy Neo awful kid, 
um, that he is really, really clean cut and taken care of in comparison to her anyway. And it's because her father or his father is trying to keep up appearances and it drops something in about her, his dad being a clerk, like as part of a church is what I took from that or a cleric. Sorry, not a clerk, Mm. slightly different, a cleric, but that, that would have been such a wonderful detail to know a little bit earlier because I mean, she even says something where she's like, I almost prayed. Like it was really ironic that she would try to do that. And, um, I just wasn't in context later. I was like, Oh, it's because he's the representative of the church and that's ironic, but it would have been nice to know that at the beginning. Yeah. I, I will second that. Um, because I think one of the details we get before that is that Lucy makes some comment about how Neo's mom makes him get his hair cut every two weeks. And I, when I read that, I was like, that does not seem like the sort of information that a drug runner boy would make available to anybody. And when, when I read it, I didn't realize that, like, the church was the drug empire. I thought that the church... I might have misread that too. Yeah, but... so, so I guess here's just something to be aware of. There have been two reader responses to this. Um, but one way of reading it, Caitlin's way, was that the church is the drug empire and that it's, like, a front for the drug empire. But I thought that the drug empire was something separate and just had a church in its pocket. And uh, I'm sure that is a thing that will get clarified in the rest of the manuscript. But it was something that made me stop and ask some questions that maybe I didn't need to be asking right then. Um, But that's entirely up to you and how this book is paced. Uh, I just have a thing about the fingerless gloves. um, Because the aesthetic is really cool, but I wasn't sure I totally understood how that worked if her hand is covered in a contagious disease like you would think she'd want the whole thing covered and not just the palm which is a very small detail but it did make me stop that's about all we have time for today thank you so much kirsten white for coming on the show thank you for having me it's been really fun be sure to check out kirsten's books paranormal sea and I Darken, The Dark Descent of Elizabeth Frankenstein, The Guinevere Deception, and many, many more, which are all delightful. Our next guest will be Marissa Meyer, the New York Times bestselling author of The Lunar Chronicles, Heartless, and The Renegade series. If you would like a first chapter critique from Marissa, check out our submission guidelines and get us your work by April 9th. After that, we'll be recording with Lauren Spieler, who is a literary agent at Traiata USA, and also the author of She's the Worst and Your Destination is on the Left. Chapters for her critique need to be in by April 16th. Thank you so much to our intern, Lindsay Owens. She is amazing. If you would like to ask us questions, tell us we're awesome, or whine about how your writing is going, you can find us on social media or email us at litservicepodcast at gmail.com. Please remember to like, share, and review the podcast. It helps us grow. For Lit Service, thanks for listening, and we'll see you in two weeks.